Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 20 is where we are this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 20, working through the book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as I said last week, we'll continue in this study uh, throughout the summer. Uh, Again, podcast, video, audio, all online, kingchapel.net, if you miss out a week uh, or so. You can just go on there, and and, uh, there's CDs in the back, too, usually maybe a week later. Uh, you can grab one. So turn your Bibles, First Samuel chapter 20. Bibles are in the back. Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. You all can go. While we are here studying First Samuel, you will be studying, I think, the life of Paul today. Um, let me bring everybody up to speed. We'll read, verse 20, we'll read chapter 20 together. Um, remember the first king of Israel, his name is Saul. He's on a downward spiral. <laughs> He was given multiple chances to turn from his sin, uh, but chosen rather instead not to soften his heart, but to really buckle down now, (laughs) even harder on on his selfish ways and rebellious ways. And God has made it already abundantly clear, we know, that his kingship will not be passed on to his son, Jonathan. Uh, It was going to be stripped from him because he has rejected God as the ultimate king, the one over Israel. And therefore, God has rejected Saul as king of Israel. Remember, Saul was anointed in part, uh, in part because of Israel's rebellion, because of Israel's desire for to have their own king of their own choosing. But God had a different man, and his name is David, a God, a man God has set his heart on. Remember, we said it has less to do with the place God has in the man's heart, but more about the place the man has in God's heart. That's important. David himself will pray in 2 Samuel 7, because of your promises is his prayer, because of your promises, O Lord, according to your own heart, O God, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it, known it. David was anointed by oil, by Samuel as the king. We know the Spirit of God came upon him. He was sent into the service of Saul, because you remember, the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul, and a harmful or evil spirit was given to him. Then David fought Goliath, remember, as God's, as, excuse me, Israel's representative pointing to the greater representative who will fight for God's enemy. His name is Jesus Christ. And by the time we get now to chapter 20, David has already been married. He married King Saul's daughter. His heart has been knit together with King Saul's son, a man of faith, as well. His name is Jonathan. So as we get into this plot, uh, I want you to see this, this family dynamic. All right, King Saul has been rejected. David has been anointed. David is, is now playing the law, or at least he was, to calm down this harmful spirit that is terrorizing the king. He's in his presence. He's the king's son-in-law, married to Michael. And he has a very close relationship to Michael's son, Michael's brother, the king's son, Jonathan. And you would think at this point, David got it made. I mean, he's in the presence of the king, he's married to the king's daughter, he's friends with the king's son, but we know otherwise, right? Past couple of chapters, <laughs> three times Saul, the king, tried to kill David by throwing his spear at him. Twice he tried to send David on dangerous missions, hoping that the Philistines would kill him. And three times he, he recruited, recruited his servants as a way to try to help take the life of David. The fact that none of these plans have come to fruition, have actually happened and taken place, points to the providential and sovereign plan and purposes of God. And yet, David is still afraid. I think Jonathan will see there is fear. I mean, I don't blame him. I think he's seeing the hand of God, but he still has someone who is the most powerful person in the kingdom trying to kill him. And last week, we saw uh, David escape four times, remember? From Saul's threats, David is fleeing. And then lastly, as we end chapter 19, we find, <laughs> they, excuse me, we find uh, Saul the king going after David, who's at Ramah, with the prophet Samuel. That's how the chapter ends. And as he is going after David, as he comes to Samuel and David, who's at Ramah, he, what? He starts prophesying. Him and the other three teams of hitmen that were sent to kill David at Ramah are all prophesying. And there is Saul laying naked before the prophet, praising God. 
right? A really cool scene, right? It's not a sign of, of Saul's conversion. We said this, don't read into this New Testament. It's not a sign of these other hitmen who are converted. What we see is it's a sign of the sovereignty of God. They came to kill David, and God intervenes, and now they're praising him. I love it. Ending chapter 19, chapter 20, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the infallible, authoritative, inherent word of the Lord. First Samuel chapter 20, we'll read it, and then we'll go into the text. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah. We said that's where he was, in Ramah, or Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Chapter 20, verse 2. And he said to him, far from it. Jonathan says, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked if your father yeah, misses me at all. You know, my eyes are really starting to go. I don't know if you need to know that, but whew. David earnestly asked leave of me. To run to Bethlehem, the city, for there is yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it'll be well with your servant. But if he is angry, hmm, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, verse 8, is a key verse. Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But, there, but if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded, excuse me, when I have sounded out my father about this time today, tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. More also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when this matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it. And though I shot at a mark, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a boy saying, go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, look, the arrow on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come. For the Lord lives, it is safe for you there. There's no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go. For the Lord has sent the way, the Lord has sent you away. And... As for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. When the new moon came and the king sat down to eat, the king sat on, the, on his seat at other times on the seat by the wall. Smart. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's was empty. His place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day for he thought, hmm, something has happened to him. He is not clean, surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, well, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go 
for our own clan holds a sacrifice in this city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Sounds fair. It's a lie. Anyway, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen a son of Jesse to your own shame? And to the shame of your mother's nakedness, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. You think? And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day. And he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, verse 35, 36, whatever, it's near there. I can't see. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the, appropriate, uh, to the appointment with David and with the little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not say, do not stay. So, Jonathan, so Jonathan's boy gathered up all the arrows, came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Verse 40. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy, and he said, Go, go back into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the steep, the uh, stone heap and fell on his face to the ground, bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. Interesting. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because you have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and he departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Whew, may God add a blessing to the reading of his word. That's the story. Simple outline is a promise. Throughout the text, there's promises being made. There's a plan implemented or, or devised. I think I have devised on another slide, but that's okay. The projectile tossed. It began with a P, it fits. And then parting friends. Chapter 20 opens. Interesting. I don't have all the verses up. I hope you have the Bible. With David, he's in Ramah, he's leaving Ramah, and David, if you notice in the text, in the beginning of chapter 20, he's back in Gibeah. So it's not that far away, he had fled, he fled there, and now he's back in Gibeah. Obviously, according to our text, Jonathan, the son, who knows everything, doesn't know what's going on. Doesn't understand what's going on. Didn't see chapter 19. <laughs> didn't, didn't know that four attempts were being made on the life of David. I think probably he was out on mission somewhere. He had probably left Gibeah, sent on a mission by his father, and now he's back home and he missed all of the four attempts. And, and David is trying to make sense, and David's back in Gibeah, and notice he doesn't ask, is your father trying to kill me? But he says, what have I done? What have I done and what is my guilt? Your father is trying to kill me, but I, I, I don't think I've done anything wrong. And at first, Jonathan seems naive. No, can't be. Yeah, he really is. And we'll see at the end, he won't be. But for now, he's, he's like far from it, he says. And he says to him, David tells him what, you know, listen, he's trying to kill me. And, and Jonathan's like, listen, my dad tells me everything. He never told me that. Remember back in chapter 19, the first attempt upon David really was Saul calling Jonathan and the, and, and the servants together and saying, let's kill this guy. And then Jonathan, in a, in, in a word of grace, filled with the Spirit, confronts his father and says, why are you killing this innocent man? Chapter 19, the first couple verses. And what does Saul do? His father, after being convinced by his son, he says, I swear an oath of the Lord, by the Lord, a solemn oath, that he will not put David to death. Not a hair upon his head is going to be touched. That's all Jonathan remembers. Like, and then he comes back and he's like, what do you mean my father's trying to kill you? And David tries to convince Jonathan that his life is in grave danger. Look at verse uh, 4. It's but a step, he says. It, it, it is but a step. Verse 3. There's but a step between me and death. And just like a good friend, a loyal friend, verse 4. Jonathan says, whatever you say, David. 
I don't see it, but whatever you say, I will do for you. And then David begins to tell him about this plan, and we'll talk about the plan. I got this plan. I got this way we can figure this out, whether it's true or not, so that you can see what's really going on. But look at verse 8. I mentioned it already. This is the, chap- this is the verse that kind of is the theme or at least the glue that holds this chapter together. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, David says, Therefore, your father's trying to kill me. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant. I love the word. He's, look at the word he's using. He's using the word servant. You brought your servant, David talking to Jonathan, into a covenant of the Lord with you. What does David do it? David is reminding Jonathan of the covenant that he made with him in chapter 18. The covenant involves promises, commitments, and in that verse, verse 8, two very important words I want to highlight for you this morning. The first one is kindly, verse 8. Therefore, deal kindly. That's the Hebrew word hesed, chesed, as they say, don't. Sit too close. I don't want to spit on you. King James, loyal love. If you have an RSV, it's, it's mercy. New American Standard is steadfast love. Uh, loving kindness, excuse me. RSV is steadfast love. Sometimes in the NIV, it translates has said as, as, as just love. But the word is more than just love. It, it is a loyal love. It is a loyal love. It's not merely just simply kindness. It is a, a dependable a dependable kindness. It's not just affection. It's an affection that's committed to you. It's a commitment. In Exodus 34, Moses is asked by God to go up to the mountain a second time and get the, 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 the new tablets of stone. And, and God appears to him and he, and he reveals to Moses his name, right? The Lord, the Lord. God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in said, Steadfast love. The very thing that David now is entreating in this covenant to Jonathan. And that's the other word. In fact, has said used 200, 250 times, just so you know, in the, in the Old Testament. It speaks of the personal commitment of God. It speaks of his faithful, loyal love. A love that none of us deserve, but God kindly deals with his people through has said, through this what's called covenantal love and mercy. A second word important in, that, in verse 8 is covenant. A binding agreement, a binding arrangement that specifies the conditions of a certain and particular relationship. There are all kinds of covenants in the Bible. What he's saying is, there's a covenant. It's about relationships. It's about relationships. The word covenant is in verse 8. That's it. It's just, it's just one time used in verse 16. It's not in the text in the Hebrew, but they put it in there just to make, just to make sense. But this whole chapter is about covenant. The provisions of oaths, verses 12 through 17, the illusion or the the speaking of God as the guardian of this covenant. Verse 23, Saul's acknowledgement of of Jonathan's commitment to David in verses 30 and 31. Even in verse 42, he says, the Lord is between us in his parting words of friends. Should should speak to us clearly what this chapter is about. And what the theme of this chapter is about, it's about covenant. Old Testament professor Alec Moitier says this about covenant. He says, the word covenant combines, now listen, the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. Right? The warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness, end quote. Covenant, binding relationship, and has, and has said mercy and loyal love go together. Remember we said a couple of weeks ago, this friendship is rooted in a mutual love for God. Their friendship, mutual love for God, a shared devotion to to the glory of God, a, a faith in this God to save, the faith in this God for the power to rescue his people. And that's the covenant that David has with Jonathan. And now David is remembering the covenant. And the covenant now has given David a reason, listen, a reason to look for and depend upon Jonathan's said, his devoted, loyal love. Remember the covenant. Love, listen, gives itself in covenant. And the covenant partner in that covenant rests in the security that that covenant of said brings to them. That's what covenants are. And David is pleading that covenant. And David says to Jonathan, look at verse 8b. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. 
For why should you bring me to your father? In other words, if there's guilt in me, and if I've broken this covenant, if it somehow has happened, if I've threatened your father in any way, if that's what I've done, you do it yourself. Notice how David does not immediately, or at least begin, by condemning or attacking Saul for what Saul is doing to him. His focus is on, well, what's my part in this? Is there a part in this? I like to tell people when they're, and it's not my, uh, it's um, a ministry, Ken Sandy, ministry, uh, uh, has a ministry of reconciliation. He says, when we're dealing with conflict, always look up and pray, seek the glory of God. Then always look in. Before we deal with conflict, we've got to look up. How can I deal with this conflict in such a way that brings you glory, that shows the world that you're enough? And then let me look in. What's, what's my part before I look out? And rather than turn David over to Saul, <laughs> they requested Jonathan execute himself. If I'm guilty of sin, you kill me. It's not that he's like, what have I done? And Jonathan is, is just upset about that, right? He's perturbed at such a suggestion. Look at verse 9. And Jonathan said, far be it from me, from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? If, listen, if I was forced to choose, my allegiance is to you, David. You know what's interesting about that verse in verse 9? And in verse 7, the word harm. If I knew my father would harm you, verse 7, Saul wants to harm David. It's the same word, the same Hebrew word used three times in the past couple of chapters when the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord was sent to torment him. Interesting. I think it's because as you give in to your rebellion, as you, we give in, if we give in to our rebellion and evil influences, we start acting out on those evil influences. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Again, it's not, it's not to blame. I'm not saying King Saul has a reason to blame somebody or blame God. What I'm saying is sometimes, sometimes we have to, re, you know, we need to be reminded of the consequences of, of a heart that's rebellious against God as a heart that wants to do its own thing, run its own way. And, and has an attitude of indifference toward the will of God. And as they concoct this plan, they go off to the field. In verse 12 through 17, they're out in the field. They're away from the king, King Saul's ears and spears. Because we'll see, that becomes a problem. Jonathan promises to keep David informed. I'll let you know. He takes the opportunity, though, to appeal to David. Notice that with me. Verse 13, because David... David wanted something from Jonathan in the present, and Jonathan wants something from David in the future. Verse 13. And I think think that in this chapter, we're going to see Saul in a minute, but I think that Jonathan and Saul are starting to really see the picture. Remember, when David was anointed, no one really knew what that anointing was. Maybe the family knew something, but now we're starting to see they're threatened by David. Or at least Jonathan is recognizing David is going to be the next king. Look at verse 13. May the Lord, Jonathan speaking to David, may the Lord be with you as he has been or as he was with my father. Notice that? That's great insight right there. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Saul. He was anointed king in order to empower the king to act as king for Israel for the purpose of being the king. And now Jonathan is saying, the Spirit was with my father. And now I'm asking, may the Lord be with you as he was with my father. You're going to be the next king. I think he's pointing to that. I don't even think David understands it completely, but that's what he's saying. And he's looking forward to the future, and he says to David, listen, there are two things I want from you. Look at verse 14. First is, if I'm alive, when you become king and I'm alive, show me the loyal love of the Lord that I may not die. Same word. Show me the hased, the loyal love the mercy and grace. In the future, it would be Jonathan, not David. It would be Jonathan who needs this this loyal love, who needs this kindness and mercy in covenant relationship. David will be the one with the power to do so. Jonathan understood. A reversal is about to take place. Now he's looking to the future. Should he be alive? And secondly, look at verse 15. And do not... Show me has said, and, verse 15, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house 
forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You see that? So when David is in the so when David is king, he's in the power of kingship. What happens in those days is when a new king comes, the old king is done and all the supporters, all those who were around the king are put to death. That's what was done. New dynasty come to power. We don't want to leave anybody around just in case. They want to insert my authority. Let's kill the entire family. Everyone knew that's what happened. People believe that's what should happen. People practice what that should happen except the man of faith, David. He will preserve Jonathan, the crown prince, supposed crown prince, and his family. He will make a covenant with David. And that'll happen in 2 Samuel. But Jonathan is fully aware, at this point, he's renounced the kingdom. He has renounced his place as prince in, in favor of now David. That's what we see going on. And he stood in, in, in a, an arduous position. If he survives and there's a new king, boy, I better make peace with this king. Notice what Jonathan is doing. He's recognizing, listen family, Jonathan is recognizing and realizing that the future, that the future was more important than the present. Jonathan is doing what Jesus taught us to do, to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Under normal situation, under unspiritual unregenerate situations, those who are not seeking the face of God, those who do not have faith in God, this is not supposed to happen. You don't hand over your place as next in line of the kingdom. It doesn't work that way, right? You you try to take out your rival in order to get to the top. That's what people do. Life, as we're being taught, doesn't consist in securing your own kingdom but reflecting God's love and faithfulness in relationships, covenant relationships. Here we see the genuine said, the genuine love, sealed by a covenant. It's a beautiful picture of an unbreakable relationship, like the covenant of marriage, but more importantly, it points to the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, how Jesus has made a covenant with his bride, the unchangeable commitment and love and faithfulness to redeem his people. We learned that the Hesed flows from the very nature of the covenant-keeping, covenant-making God who is rich, listen, in Hesed. He is rich in loyalty. Listen, you will never perish. You and I will never, ever, ever perish when we fall into the depths of God's loving kindness. Point two, and these will go faster. Point two. The plan devised. What, what do I have up there? Oh, yeah, okay. David has a plan, right? We saw that in verse five. There's a new moon coming. And the expectation is the son-in-law will be at the new moon festival. That's the expectations. Every new moon, first of the month, the Israelites told to gather according to the law. They were to sacrifice, right? They would go to the temple. They were to sacrifice. They would take the sacrifice. They would meet in their homes uh, for feasting and celebrating and rejoicing. David's plan was to hide in the field, Wait, is the king angry or is the king not angry, right? Is it okay to come home? Is it not okay to come home? And just in case Saul was to ask Jonathan, uh, where is he? Where, where is David? Jonathan is supposed to say, see what it says? He went home to Bethlehem for a yearly sacrifice for his family. If the king says, hey, awesome, hope he enjoys himself, safe travels as he goes, all is well. But if Saul gets angry that he's not at the table and that you gave him permission to go, then we know that Saul is, Jonathan's father, has one thing in mind, and he's determined to get him. You can find out a lot at a dinner table, right? Can you imagine having Thanksgiving dinner every single month with your entire family? Some of you like, yeah, that's great. Some of you like, no, I'll jump off the bridge first. I'm not doing that. <laughs> the festival dinner was probably something that David regularly attended. He was expected to be there. And since Jonathan was going to be there and, and the king was going to possibly ask 
Why not use him for a, a, a way of to excuse why David's not there? It, it sounds reasonable. Uh, explanation went home. Unless you're trying to kill him. If you're trying to kill him, it's not reasonable. I want him here. As I said earlier, I want him dead. Right? I mean, think about it. Three times already, Saul has attempted to kill David with his spear in his own house, even went after him in his own house, David's own house, and now he had fled to Ramah with Samuel. But this dinner provides him an opportunity. See, if I can get him in my courtroom, if I can get him in my court, excuse me, in my home, I might be able to really finish him off this time. But to Jonathan, David's absence is a test. Jonathan wants to see, is this accurate? Saul, if you remember, and I think, I, I think even though he's not naive, I think Jonathan's like, listen, I already talked to my father about trying to kill you, and I convinced him he took an oath. So if I get, let, let me get another crack at him. Let, let me talk to him, right? We saw that in chapter 19, verse 6, right? Maybe, maybe after he laid naked for 24 hours worshiping the Lord, maybe some sense got into him. Let me give it a crack, David. Can I, can, let me talk to my dad. In verses 18 through 23, Jonathan pulls the trigger and and executes the plan. He tells David, this is how you'll know. Uh, When the new moon, if you're not there, wait out in the field. I'll do some target practice. I'll shoot some arrows. Uh, I'm shooting at a mark. I'm doing maybe maybe practicing. I don't know. And I'm going to send the young boy, and he's going to look for my arrows. If the boy's arrows are on the side, all good. You can come home. But if I tell the boy, listen, they're beyond you, my dad's trying to kill you. That's That's how you're going to know. And again, verse 23, there's, there's this covenant relationship. There's this covenant language. Uh, verse 23, as of the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Now, let's just pause for a minute. I just want to point something out. I think it's a very important observation. It is clear from this story, and we're going to see later on uh, as the story keeps unfolding, that the agreement between Jonathan and, and David, this bond, this oath, this covenant, this hased, involves no suggestion whatsoever for David to take the throne by force. Okay? Listen, when your dad's sleeping, open up the door. You hold him down, and I'll stick a knife. You know what I mean? Let's get him together. You don't see that. You don't see that. David twice here is humbling himself, calling Jonathan servant. Oh, I'm your servant. And time will see that he is... David's going to refuse when he had the opportunity to take Saul out, the anointed of God. And he still doesn't do that. Even while both men, David and Jonathan, were under serious threat, they they had lots of stress, violence. They were in fear. You don't see that. What do you fear? Hopefully you don't have a maniac trying to stick a spear in you. I I, I hope that's not the case. But there's plenty of fear in this present world we live in. There are real dangers. There are real enemies. Here's a lesson I think we could draw from this, a principle. Jonathan acted in the midst of the fear. Jonathan acted by looking, as I said, to the future. Jonathan acted looking. He he took the kingdom coming seriously. Right? He took took it it, it seriously. He, 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 He... dealt with what was going to be, which was more important, of his present and dangerous circumstances. What Jonathan did was fear the coming king, the future king. Uh, the, The one he knew, by faith, would reign. And what does he do? He tries to make peace with that king right now and for the future. It was a healthy fear. It was a reverence and awe. And, and he loved the coming king, and knew of David's goodness, he also determined not to be his enemy. And I think whatever, when we face fear, when we face uncertainties, I think it's wise to look at, it's wise to look to the future, right? Look past the present circumstances. Sorry, I should have shut this off, but let me shut it off right now. To look to, to, the, to, the, to the future. Because we get so caught up in the present circumstances, we don't sometimes see what's in front. Whenever you and I feel and we do it, fear and we can look to the future, we look to the what? We look to the day in which the scripture says every knee and every, every tongue confess. Every knee will bow to the lordship of Christ. 
And Jesus will usher in the new kingdom. When all the powers of this age and all the brokenness of this world will be made right. Will be made right. When King Jesus ushers in the new kingdom. Now, Jesus said in Matthew, listen to what he said. He said, have no fear of them, those who hate you, those who persecute you. For nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but not kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's talking about God. Nobody can do that. Satan doesn't do that. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, he says. Therefore, you are more valuable than the sparrows. You see, here's the deal. When we seek the hased of God, when we seek the hased of God, we find ourselves in the everlasting loving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his arms there is no fear. Don't ever forget what this teaching here, in fear and confusion and trouble, run to the one who's made a commitment and covenant for you. Jonathan knew that the kingdom was God's kingdom and therefore was going to King David. Therefore, he was able and free not to be centered on what he wanted, right? Well, all I can get, but in the providence and sovereignty and love of God. We're not crowned princes, I get that. But like Jonathan, we do have a future hope, a guaranteed future hope. The promise made, the plan devised, and look at the projectile toss, verse 24 to 34. David's waiting in the field. Jonathan goes to his father's house, sits down to eat at the new moon festival as it begins, and the king sat by the wall, verse 25. I can only imagine he don't want nobody behind him because, you know, you get one of those things around your neck, you're done. Around the table, Jonathan, Abner, probably others, and there's David's seat. It's empty. On the first day, he's like, all right, he's empty. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's unclean. I'm not going to say anything. Maybe he is ceremonially unclean. The assumption was that David maybe into a, uh, touched a dead body. There are many ways you become unclean. It wasn't on purpose. It was kind of an accident according to Levitical law. You can't, you can't come to the festival while you're unclean, right? But sometimes it's not what is thought or said. It's what's thought and not said. Why did not, I don't know the answer to this, but why did not the king say, I see David's not here. I guess trying to kill him 450 times, he's probably learned his lesson. I don't know why I didn't say that. That would have been what I would have thought. I mean, he's become that, that kind of king, oblivious to things around him. On the second day, though, it's empty. And now the king says to Jonathan, I love this, he says, where is the son of Jesse? That's an odd way to call your son-in-law, right? I, I, you know, where, where, where's, where's, where's the, not even son-in-law, I don't even use his name. He wasn't here yesterday, he wasn't here today. And then right on cue, verse 28, Jonathan tries to deceive his father, and he, knew, he says, oh, well, David's not here. He uses his name. We talked about lies last week. We talked about deception, right? Uh, here we see him trying to preserve innocent life again. But just like his sister, like brother, like sister, he lies and deceives his father. Verse 28. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. That's a lie. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me, lie number two, uh, to be there. So now, if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away. The word get away here is the word escape. Probably not a good word to use. I'm just saying, because the word's used multiple times in chapter 19 about him escaping out the window, escaping the spear. I, I think he probably could have just said he went away. I don't know. He escaped. Let me escape and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king Dave, king's table, right? That's a lie. David's in the field. He's waiting to find out whether this false story gets any tread. That was all Saul needed to hear, right? Obviously, I think Jonathan's not a good liar. I'm just saying. You know, hey, Dad, where's, jo- oh, where's David? Um, you know, you can only imagine, you know. I can't really look at you. Uh, I, he asked me leave. Really, you're lying. I can tell. It's all over your face. <laughs> right? And what does he do? He, he curses him out just about. Saul gets raving mad. Curses him out. Called him a son of a perverse woman. Try that one someday. 
Really, he's the son of a perverse man is what he is, not a woman. It's not the woman's fault. It's Saul's fault. And he says in verse 30, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? Not only to your own shame, but to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Right? You've chosen David over your family. Do you know, Jonathan, as long as David lives, verse 31, you will not prosper. Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, send him. Go get David. Bring him to me. I want to kill him. And Saul appeals to, look, shame, guilt, and greed. Three great motivations to control somebody, right? Shame, guilt, and greed. Shame on you. Shame on you because you brought shame on your mother. There's the guilt part. And don't you know you'll be king? You're going to be a prosperous man. You see what he's doing? David is trying to thwart and obstruct the sovereignty of God. I'm going to make the decision my son will be king. And this may very well be the first indication for Saul himself to recognize that David was a man after God's own heart. What does Saul, what Saul does not recall is that Samuel told him, if you follow the commands of the Lord, your kingdom will be established forever, King Saul. But he doesn't. And neither the son of Jesse, David, neither the son of Saul, Jonathan, was to blame for the end of Saul's kingship but Saul himself. After Jonathan was commanded, bring him to me. That's usually how you get people, right? Shame, guilt, and greed. Do what you want. Bring him to me. He reminds his father for the second time, David has done nothing wrong. And then Saul does what every good dad does. He tries to kill his son. Takes the spear, verse 32. (laughs) Hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew, no kidding, that his father was determined to put David to death. And verse 34 Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food, didn't want to say, let me just finish my meal, I'm out of here, just give me a minute. I probably would have done that, but anyway. uh, The second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. If there's any question in King Saul's mind on what kind of relationship Jonathan has with David, it's out the window, he knows now. He has completely identified himself with David. Three times that same spear by the same hand was tossed at David. And now Jonathan, because of his loyalty and his love for David, becomes the target of the projectile. One thing, though, we have to note. He's getting, fortunately for everybody involved, the guy can't hit nothing. I mean, he's chucking his spear everywhere. He's missed everyone so far. He really should get some practice himself. Anyway, I'm sure Jonathan got the point, pardon the pun, uh, but there's no other doubt. Now there's two empty seats, right? The table of the king, there are two empty seats, his son and his son-in-law. What started out as a naive, really, is he trying to kill you, has now come to reality. Look at the parting friends. Verses 35 through 42 is a beautiful Pictures, the truthfulness, the faithfulness, the, the loyalty of, 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 of men but in their, in their parting because of faith, because of mutual love, their trust in God, they're weeping as they leave. Beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of a closing of two chapters that were very turbulent. Jonathan gets his answer. He goes out to the field, flies the bow, flies the arrows beyond him. He says, is not the arrow beyond you he tells the boys not the arrow beyond you right so david hears that he got his answer he knows the deal verse 41 as soon as the boy had gone david rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another david weeping the most then jonathan said to david go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the lord saying the lord shall be between me and you between my offering and your offspring and your offspring forever i mean there's a picture i think even pointing to the to the future kingdom of jesus and he rose and departed and jonathan went into the city you know what that scene reminds me of that scene reminds me of acts chapter 20 the apostle paul is in my he calls for the ephesian elders together and he reminds them of his ministry he reminds them that his ministry is filled with all kinds of hardships and trials and beatings and stoning and he says i'm going to jerusalem I'm not going to see you again. The Spirit is constraining me. I got to go. But the Spirit has testified that in every city there's imprisonments, there's beatings, there's afflictions. They await from me. But you guys pay attention to the ministry. There's there's wolves that are going to come in. 
And after commending themselves to God, it says in Acts chapter 20, he knelt down and he prayed with all of them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Near Eastern, cheek to cheek. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he has spoken and they would not see his face again. You put war, conflict, trials, stress, and then you put in deep faith, hearts will become mended together. Both men are weeping. David weeping more. And then Jonathan says, go in peace. He obviously, in that text, in that context, go in peace, he doesn't mean everything's safe for you. My my, my father doesn't want to harm you. That's not the case, obviously. He's not saying go in peace. Everything in life is just peachy keen. It's your best life now. Go get it. No, but there's peace between them. They made an oath. See the context? The covenantal loyal love between the two of them. Their covenant bond has established peace. There is security. There is safety among them. There's an anchor in which their faith and, and, and their relationship is bound together. They're holding fast to that covenant of said, even when things are changing, even when there's confusion, even when there's fear. You know, biblical peace is not, first and foremost, outside serenity, family, but rather a rightness of the heart at the center of one's being. In the midst of turmoil, The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5 that we have peace with God. In verse 3, he talks about afflictions. Jesus told his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Have peace. Peace be with you, David. We have covenant of bond together. Peace be with you. Where does that peace come from? It's the gospel of peace. Think about this for a minute. Think about this for a minute, okay? Don't shut down now. Think, I want you to think about this deeply. What a contrasting picture of the gospel. Saul, a contrasting picture of the gospel. He, he's so desperately trying to hold on to power. He's so desperately trying to hold on to his authority. He's so desperately trying to hold on to control. But what does the gospel show us? What does the gospel teach us? According to Philippians 2, it says that the king of kings, the gospel himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking a form of a certain being, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, willing to leave his place in glory, steps into fallen and broken humanity, becomes a baby dependent upon earthly fallen parents for a season, and then face great injustice to suffer and die for our sins to bring redemption to mankind. Now look at David, the anointed king. But while being persecuted, hunted like a dog, an animal, he takes no real steps at all to pay or to lay hold of his kingship. His rightful place by force, he doesn't do that. He's humble, he's unwilling to endure the hatred, the fear, the murderous threats of Saul. Peter tells us that while Jesus, the truly humble one, the truly innocent one, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He suffered, but he he did not threaten. He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus rested in the power and the perfect will of his father. Even Jonathan is a glimpse of the gospel because Jesus is the true and better friend. He sticks closer than a brother. He alone makes a covenant in his blood. He alone will never leave you, never leave me nor forsake us, even though, listen, if we're honest, we deserve it. If I'm honest, I deserve it. Now listen. Believers in Christ do not have peace because things are peaceful among us, outside of us. He alone, Jesus alone, brings peace. We have the peace because a greater one, a greater one than Jonathan, has pledged his love, vow, and friendship to us through the covenant of his blood. On the night Jesus was betrayed, 
and denied by his friends, he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new cup sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. It is the covenant bond of, of, uh, of that unforsaking friend that speaks to us in days of hardship, in days of fear, in days of disappointment, dangers, even disasters in our life. You know, they say in human relationships that blood is thicker than water. Not here. Not when the blood that we're talking about is the blood of the eternal Son of God who became man, who lived the perfect life, and then died a grueling, atoning death on the cross. See Jesus. See Jesus. Loyal covenant love wins every time because of the blood that flows, not in our veins, but from Calvary. And that's what this, that's what this table's here for, to remind us, to reflect, to enter into, to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, all that he suffered, the bread representing his body that was broken, the cup representing the blood that was shed on your behalf for your sins. He himself takes the penalty. He himself dies in our place. He himself absorbs the wrath of God so that we can have a friend forever. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you trusting in him? The band's going to come up. The band's going to play. We're going to spend quiet time confessing sin, calling the whole church, because we're all sinners, to confession. And then to repentance, calling on God to say, I need to turn from that. And then celebrating, because Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the better Jonathan. And Jesus did not hold on to, but let go of his life for yours. Father, God, we are so, so grateful this morning. Lord, we ask that as we sing, as we respond, as we confess, as we turn from our sins, and particularly as we celebrate your work, what you have done, it's not about us. We we could never earn, deserve our way into the table. We come humbly recognizing you are calling us to the table, to recognize humbly what Jesus has done for us. Help us, Lord, to worship him. Help us, Lord, to love him. Help us, Lord, to recognize his covenantal loyal love to us that we may experience forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name.